My major pain has, has been invisible. The mobility aid makes it better. It gives me freedom. It can get to the core beliefs we have about ourselves. Don't ever think you're alone. Welcome to Major Pain. I'm your host, Jesse Mercury, and this week we'll be speaking with Becca about their chronic illness journey so far. Many people with a chronic illness will experience going to a doctor and complaining of what they're experiencing and having the doctor tell them that it's just anxiety. They'll mark that diagnosis of anxiety down in that person's chart, and it can haunt them for years, and that's exactly what happened to Becca. When they were 14 years old, they suffered an episode where they suddenly became extremely hot, fell to the floor and couldn't get back up, suddenly experiencing strange neurological sensations, like their arm feeling like it didn't belong on their body. When paramedics came, they took one look at Becca and said, this is just anxiety. You're having an anxiety attack. And this is the first of many times that Becca would hear this throughout their journey. Over the next year, their condition would deteriorate, and they would end up bedbound, having to leave school as a 15-year-old. And their doctors were saying, wow, this must be the worst case of anxiety I've ever seen. But they weren't running appropriate tests. They weren't ordering blood work or imaging or trying to figure out if maybe there was something medical going on beyond anxiety. And of course, being a 15-year-old kid dealing with all of this intense medical trauma that is very anxiety-inducing. So Becca was experiencing anxiety around that. And that just fueled these doctors' opinion that all of their problems were caused by anxiety. And it would take years for Becca to find a doctor that would actually help them. Fast forward to today, and Becca has been diagnosed with a laundry list of conditions, including POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, epilepsy, a tic disorder, hemiplegic migraines, gastrointestinal issues, and myalgic encephalomyelitis, or chronic fatigue syndrome. Becca also has hypermobility, and several of their doctors have suspected that they might have some form of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, a connective tissue disease. Something like EDS could provide an umbrella diagnosis from which all of these other issues could be comorbidities. But Becca has been really struggling to find a doctor willing to run appropriate genetic tests or even just to diagnose hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, which is a clinical diagnosis and the only form of EDS that does not currently have a genetic marker attached to it. But now that Becca has found some better care, they have been able to improve their quality of life. With mobility aids like a wheelchair, since Becca is a fellow ambulatory wheelchair user, and also just having doctors willing to listen and believe them when Becca says there is something going on in their body. It's a fascinating story, a really, really great interview. Becca did a fantastic job. Another excellent, excellent episode of the podcast that I'm really excited to share with you, and we'll get to it in just a couple minutes. I've been getting some great feedback about our podcast episodes recently uh, on our Instagram and TikTok and through email, and I wanted to share some of it with you today. I also just noticed we hit a new record for biggest single day ever of people listening to the podcast last Friday. More people downloaded the podcast last Friday than has ever happened on one single day in the history of this show. Two weeks ago on the show, we featured a story about overcoming chemical sensitivity with brain retraining. And last week, we talked about recovering from CRPS through another form of brain retraining called mirror therapy. Um, this has really piqued my interest in brain retraining, and I got some great emails from people about the subject. So this is from Jennifer, who was actually on the podcast earlier in the season, uh, talking about her journey with myalgic encephalomyelitis. She says, hi, Jesse. I just listened to the newest episode with Meredith. She is such a warrior and seems like a cool person. I'm so happy to hear she's doing better. As always, I enjoyed listening to your conversation. 
Your curiosity and joy of speaking with the chronic illness community is so charming and powerful. Thank you so much, Jennifer. I really appreciate that. Uh, continuing her email, I also did some brain retraining to help me in my recovery, but I'm ashamed that I didn't mention it specifically in my interview. I have tried so many things, so I'm not able to say with 100% certainty that it was the cause of my recovery, but the main reason I didn't mention it was the fact that I worried it would be met with skepticism and doubt. In hindsight, that was dumb and I regret it. There are a few free resources too, like the Curable app or Miguel Batista on YouTube. The Curable app isn't totally free, but it is very low cost compared to other programs. Lindsay from the Post Viral podcast actually has a business consulting people on the best brain retraining because there are so many on the market. The Instagram handle is at CFSprograms underscore navigator. It's truly a testament of how far behind mainstream medicine has come when a plethora of successful brain retraining courses are available, yet they remain entirely unknown to doctors and the general public. Meredith was lucky to find such a great medical team. Have a very Merry Hanukkah and a Happy New Year. Wishing you happiness, success, and above all, health. Thank you so much, Jennifer. What a great email. I so appreciated that. And thank you for letting me share that with our community as well. Some really great tips in there, checking out the Curable app or Miguel Batista on YouTube. And on the same topic, I also heard from Meredith, who was on the show a couple weeks ago, and she wanted to share with us one of her favorite videos about neuroplasticity and how the brain can change and be rewired. She says, this video absolutely blows my mind and inspires me, and I think you'll find it fascinating. And this video is called The Brain That Changes Itself, the full documentary. And this is on YouTube, and you can watch it for free. I haven't checked it out yet, but I thought this was a great tip if people were looking to learn more about neuroplasticity and neural rewiring. I always love hearing from the listeners of this podcast. You can always reach out to me at our email address, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com, or you can interact with us on social media at Instagram and TikTok at majorpainpodcast, and on Twitter at majorpainpod. You can also leave a comment on any episode of the podcast on our website at majorpainpodcast.com. I'm excited to say that my upswing with my health is continuing. I've been doing really great recently. Uh, it's really making me start to wonder if we've really hit on something with this mast cell activation syndrome uh, potential diagnosis because, you know, I'm eating the low histamine diet and I'm doing all this medication to stabilize mast cells and I just keep doing better and better. I'm at a place now where I feel like I could hide the fact that I'm chronically ill where I could, you know, function for a lot of the day and kind of pass as being healthy. Um, I haven't used my wheelchair at all since I got back from Disneyland a month ago. So, yeah, I mean, things are going in a really great direction. I'm still kind of processing that. I don't really know how to feel about that yet. You know, since all of my testing for, for MCAS has been negative, we haven't been able to get, you know, a firm answer but all of the medication and the treatment regimen and the diet, it's all really helping. More so than anything I've, I think I've ever tried to try to take control over my chronic illness. Nothing has ever really worked because we didn't know what it was. So we didn't know what to do. Um, this is the first time where it feels like this might actually be working. And I'm starting to feel some real excitement about it. So, yeah, I mean, I, I just started a new medication called uh, Ketotofen. I think I'm saying that right. And so far, so good. And I, I did a lot of research about, you know, what to do for, for MCAS because my allergist is definitely familiar with it and prescribing me medication, but I don't know if he's necessarily an expert in this disease. 
So in all of my research and in talking to people on the podcast, like uh, Pauline, who we had on the show talking about MCAS a couple months ago, you know, I've, I've heard from multiple sources that it's a good idea to be on multiple types of histamine blockers. So, you know, something like an antihistamine like Allegra is an H1 blocker, but it turns out that Pepsid that people take for, you know, acid reflux is an H2 blocker. So I've been reading, you want to be on an H1 and an H2 blocker. And all of the medications my doctor has prescribed so far are H1 blockers. So I just thought I'd try out some Pepsid because I had some lying around as an H2 blocker. And I, I felt myself get a little bit better after that. And then I started on Ketotofen. It's just been a couple of days so far, but I feel like I always have like swelling in my sinuses. And that feels like it's been maybe, maybe improving just slightly. I don't know. I might be making it up. It's hard to say. These things can take a while. But the timing of this has been fantastic because, you know, I mentioned on the show earlier that uh, Andy and I are moving into a home together, which we're very excited about. And over the holidays, we had this one day of absolute freezing temperatures in Seattle. All the streets froze over, people, people's cars and people themselves were just sliding down hills. It was such a mess. Um, but we unfortunately had a pipe burst in our garage of our house that we haven't even moved into yet. We got a call on Christmas Day. Our neighbor next door that we hadn't even met yet, but she managed to get a hold of us um, through the grapevine, and we rushed over to the house, shut off the water, and when we got there, we discovered that the roof was leaking in several places, and it's just, it's been a bit of a mess. <laughs> we were already doing a little bit of renovation before moving in, because we discovered a couple of issues with airflow and the crawl spaces and a little bit of mold growth, and with my history... Uh, with uh, with mold sensitivity, we just wanted to make sure we'd taken care of that before moving in. Um, but the freezing temperatures uh, caused some additional damage to the roof, and it just started leaking water. So, um, yeah, we've just been going to the house every day, trying to get things dried out. We've got, you know, professionals coming in to help dry out the house, and it's just been wild. But it's also been incredible that I've been able to show up for all of this every day. You know, I'm we're going to the house every day and meeting with uh, with people who are working on drying it out, and I'm able to get up and go and do it, which is incredible. You know, I haven't missed a day of that. And I'm going into a house with known mold. I'm wearing a mask, of course, but it's not completely destroying me. So it's, uh, it's like I'm in a whole new body all of a sudden. I'm definitely still hitting walls. I'm definitely still not at a place where I can 100% rely on my energy to be there. I'm still, you know, needing to lie down for long stretches throughout the day after doing all this stuff. Uh, but some days, I, some days I make it through the whole day without lying down, which is incredible. And I've also been like starting to take care of the yard a little bit, raking up leaves and doing some pruning and learning about, you know, some stuff and with gardening that I just don't know much about. So I don't know. It's all, it's, it's been really, really stressful. Like, don't get me wrong. <laughs> the, the stress level is high, but it's also been really exciting. And some aspects of it have been really fun. And the fact that, that it's happening at a moment in my health where I'm improving is just so, exciting. You know what I've been thinking about is that, you know, there've been many times where I went to the doctor and they accused me of being sick because of my anxiety level. Uh, at one point, I was actually diagnosed with a conversion disorder and told that my illness was being caused by my body uh, converting stress into physical symptoms uh, and that there was nothing the doctor could do to help me and sent me to behavioral psychologists. And behavioral psychologist is like, hey, 
this is a medical issue. Go back to the doctor. And I got stuck with nowhere to go. Um, so that has happened to me. You know, thinking about Becca's episode today and what they talk about, I am also someone who has been accused by doctors as having physical symptoms that are just manifestations of an anxiety disorder. But yeah, when, it, when a doctor puts it in your head that you're causing your illness through your own anxiety level, it's really hard to get those thoughts out of your head. It becomes an anxiety spiral. And this experience recently with the house is proving to me again and again that anxiety is not the cause of my illness and that I'm able to weather anxiety without an increase in symptoms. And I know I'm not alone in thinking this, but it's just so unfair that doctors put chronic illness patients in the position to question their own experience of reality over and over by refusing to listen. So yeah, when you find a good doctor, hold on to them tight because it's such an important thing to have. But at a time with all these unexpected things happening, all these unexpected costs, and you know my limited ability to contribute financially because I'm not uh, still not working because of my chronic illness, although I really feel like I'm getting close to being able to go back to work. So we'll see what happens with that. But for the time being, I appreciate the people supporting this podcast financially more than ever. So extra, extra special thank you to everyone supporting the show through Patreon, uh, with monthly financial contributions through Patreon especially our Patreon producers supporting the show at the top tier of $25 per month, Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Ensign Q, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. If you'd like to sign up to support the show, you can learn more at patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast. Every month, Andy and I sit down to record a bonus episode for our entire Patreon community, and it is that time again. I just released the bonus episode for the month of January. So if you want to hear the whole saga of what's going on with the house, <laughs> Andy and I shared a bunch more details than I'm sharing here on the main podcast feed. Uh, it's been quite a roller coaster journey so far. And of course, we also always talk about what we're watching on TV. And we did go see Avatar The Way of Water, which I'm excited to talk about because you know I'm such a big sci-fi nerd. So we got a great bonus episode for you um, available to all the Patreon community. I'll put a link in the description of this episode. If you already signed up on Patreon, you can click that link. It'll take you right to the bonus episode. And if you haven't signed up on Patreon yet, then that link will take you to a place where you can sign up and gain access to all the bonus episodes for as little as $2 per month. Special thank you to everyone who has supported this show by signing up through Rare Patient Voice to participate in research studies and surveys. You will actually get paid for your time if you are selected to participate in a study or a survey, an average of $100 per hour. And for every person who signs up through our link, rarepatientvoice.com slash majorpainpodcast, you will be supporting this podcast while you sign up. Someone new signed up this week, which uh, sent me another $10 Amazon gift card. And those really add up and help pay for all of the supplements that I'm taking uh, to deal with MCAS, supposed MCAS, hopefully, fingers crossed, knock on wood. <laughs> so all of those are really, really helping because these supplements also really add up. That's um, a great way to support the show and you can get paid for your time, which is a great plus. Another great way to support the show is to help us reach new listeners. One of the best ways to do so is to leave us a positive rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or even a positive review on Apple Podcasts. I love seeing new ratings and reviews come in. It's a it's just a great way to support the show and really makes me feel good. So I always appreciate that so much. As always, I'll remind you that my guest and I are not medical professionals. Do not take any medical action based off what you hear on this podcast without first consulting your doctor. 
And with that, we'll jump into our amazing episode with Becca about their chronic illness journey so far. Becca, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. Yes, I'm very excited to have you on the show today. You are a fellow Seattleite. We're just a couple, we're like a couple blocks away from each other. It's crazy. <laughs> I know. We're like just figuring that out now. I'm like, oh, cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You live in a neighborhood I used to live in and live very yeah. close by too still. Um, so we're having a very, very gloomy day today. Although it looks like the sun might be coming out just a little bit, but you know, it's December in Seattle. It's always raining. Yeah. I hope the sun comes out soon though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How do you feel about the rain in Seattle? Are you someone who misses the sun? Um, I'm 50, 50. Cause like both too much sun and cold kind of affect me. So mm. I love the sun. I love the cold. And I also like equally dislike them. So I'm kind of always in a weird spot about the weather. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I really, you know, I grew up in San Diego where it's very hot. So I really still love the seasons up here and love the, the change of pace that we get. And I still love the rain, you know, in San Diego, Rain was a very rare occurrence. I still love it. <laughs> anyway, let's get to know you a little bit. Um, so, Becca, why don't you tell us about yourself? Yeah, so I'm going to be a new student here in January 2023. I'm really excited about that. I'm going to be going to college to major in art and minor in disability activism. So, wow. it's going to be really fun. And I'm going to try to get my bachelor's. Um, I'm an artist at the moment, I'm a full-time artist. Um, I really love animals. I love like alternative fashion, uh, like body modifications. So like the whole like ear stretching and, um, you know, tattoos and piercings. I've been a part of that culture my whole life. Um, I'm really into video games. Mm. I've been like out streaming lately a lot. Um, I'm actually like downloading some stuff from stream right now onto my new computer. So that's, that's a big thing for me. Um, and I'm like huge into like nature and bugs. I've always been really like fascinated by bugs ever since I was a kid. Um, so it's like a study subject of mine. And also something is I have my medical cannabis consulting certification. I previously worked as a medical cannabis consultant that was probably one of the best jobs I've ever had. And I really miss it. Um, and I also previously worked in the dental field as a surgical sterilization tech and a like bedside assistance person, which wasn't something I was really planning on. Um, I got hired as the surgical tech and then they were like, Hey, you should be our uh, dental assistant. And I, I didn't like that very much. <laughs> kind of, um, that's a little bit about me. Awesome. I actually used to uh, stream video games. I was a Mario Maker and Breath of the Wild oh, yeah. streamer. What would you stream if you were to give it a try? Oh my gosh. I'd probably be streaming Sims way too much, either mm -hmm. that or CSGO. I really like CSGO. Awesome. Well, I feel like I have a sense of who you are. So let's jump into your story. Uh, Becca, what is your major pain? My major pain is uh, suspected hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. 
However, I'm more affected by the comorbidities that I'm already diagnosed with. Mm. Um, my main one being in me or, and I'm going to butcher this, myalgic encephalomyelitis. Yeah. Um, it was also known as chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, I also have like uh, epilepsy, POTS. I have a like mild tick disorder, but it's been getting a little bit worse with time. Um, I have like hemoplegic migraines, which is like a really rare type of migraine um, and like just a laundry list of other conditions. But that's kind of like my top issues that I've been dealing with. I do have like some pretty severe mystery pain going on, Mm -hmm. um, like in my back and neck that makes it to where I can't stand for long periods of time. So I'm also like an ambulatory mobility user. Um, more so with like a wheelchair right now. Um, and then like, I have some really weird, like eye issues. They thought it was something called optic nerve drusen for a while. And then they're like kind of questioning now. Um, it's definitely something to do with my optic nerve. It's swollen and also thinning, um, Mm -hmm. which I kind of suspect might be like the Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Um, and then just like random gastro problems. So wow. I'm kind of all over the place. <laughs> you are like, you're like a classic Spoonie. Yeah. Oftentimes when you, when you meet people with chronic illness, there, there are topics that kind of come up a lot and you've got a lot of them, <laughs> all of them happening yeah. at once. That sounds, that sounds overwhelming. It's incredibly overwhelming. And then it's caused me like psychiatric issues on top of it because yeah. of just how much is already going on. Um, I was already de- like predisposed to mental health issues. Um, so now I also struggle with like obsessive compulsive disorder and, um, I've been in the diagnostic process for autism for about four years now, hmm. um, which that's been <laughs> more than interesting. It's r- actually a lot harder to get a diagnosis than a lot of people think especially as a, as an adult from what i understand there was yeah. there was one thing in there that i'd never heard of that form of migraine can you tell me again what that was called so those are hemoplegic migraines hemoplegic um, migraines yeah what is that so they kind of look like strokes um where basically like one side of your face is drooping and sometimes i have head pain with it and sometimes i don't so it's kind of like similar pain to like a migraine but your face is drooping you're kind of like slurring your speech Mm. um sometimes parts of my body are numb like on the same side and for a long time i thought i was having like miniature strokes especially when i was younger because i just didn't have an understanding of more rare conditions um and I was one of those unfortunate people that my doctors passed off everything as anxiety. Um, so I suffered with all of this for five, about like around five years before they really started figuring things out. Um, Cause it's starting to seem like some of the issues, especially like Ehlers-Danlos is like hereditary. Do you have a family history of, of similar things? Yes and no. Like I would say that I'm like the, one of the most severe cases in my family. Um, my grandma, who unfortunately has passed away recently, but she was was kind of in a similar boat. Um, for a, like, from what I understand, most of her life she was bed bound, mm. 
And I've been bed bound on and off since my condition kind of started to rear their head really hard. So I've been bed bound on and off since 14. Um, wow. And then my grandma has been bed bound on and she hit worth bed bound on and off since like her early 20s. Um, and she just had like a mystery health decline is kind of how people put it. But really like most of my family would kind of just be like, oh, she's a hypochondriac. Your grandma's a hypochondriac. Um, but now with that, I'm starting to get the diagnoses that I'm getting. I kind of theorized that my grandma actually had things going on that people were just ignoring. Yeah. Um, she did have like a really deep history with, you know, being abused by her parents. And so when people did kind of just push off the things that she was worried about, she went with it really easily. And at first when I started having the symptoms I was having, I was really scared and there was a lot of fear, but I didn't push super hard to like figure out what was going on. It wasn't until I got older and realized like, Hey, you know, my grandma also has stuff going on and there's like a couple family members on my dad's side to have some weird things that are just mysteries going on. And, um, it wasn't until later that my mom actually told me that she had epilepsy and I was wow. like, Oh, that would have been nice to know. <laughs> yeah, um, totally. It, it's wow. It sounds like, uh, you, you have some things figured out, but some of the bigger picture things you're still trying to kind of get a, get a handle on. Like if there is a umbrella condition from which all this is trickling down from, like uh, like you mentioned, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, is is that accurate? Yeah. So the story about Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is interesting for me. So the first time I ever heard about it, I was at a uh, eye doctor appointment, and it was the first time they were realizing that there was something really going on with my vision. I started losing vision in my right eye. And so when I went to the eye doctor, he was the one who sat me down and was like, have you ever heard of something called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome? Wow. And I was like, no. And he was like, you know, I have another patient that has Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And a lot of the other, like, you know, mystery symptoms that you're dealing with sound a lot like it. Because when I went into his office, um, he was at first like concerned about MS. And so he started asking me questions about that because of the way he like saw the blind spots in my vision or something. And the way that the swelling was, he just mm. said like, Oh, this kind of seems like MS. So he started further questioning me on other symptoms. And then he was like, Oh, I don't think it sounds like MS necessarily, but it really sounds like something called Ehlers-Danlos. And so he asked me like a specific set of questions, but at that time I was so overwhelmed with like everything that was going on and I wasn't clearly thinking. And so when I brought it up to my doctor and they kind of were like, eh, I kind of treated it similarly, like they kind of brushed it off. And so I kind of brushed it off. Um, they ended up putting out a referral to a geneticist. But when I got the call back, um, they were like, yeah, so it's a five-year wait list. What? Um, yeah. And I was like, well, that's awful. And at the time I was all that savvy with like looking into my own symptoms on the internet or anything like that. So I didn't actually look up what Ehlers-Danlos was. I didn't understand that it could cause so many conditions and so many issues. 
I was just like, eh, it's probably not something I have because that's the way my doctors were about it. Um, and so I continued with like an anxiety diagnosis for, for so long. Um, well, yeah, you started this diagnostic process at 14. You said what 14 year old is going to know to second guess (laughs) everything their doctor says, what 14 year old knows how to fight back against medical gaslighting. And you know, it's something we all experience this idea that, um, I mean, yes, anxiety is bad. We all recognize that anxiety can have physical manifestations, but so many people are told that everything they're experiencing is because of anxiety, which is very often not true and causes more anxiety. It's just so backwards. Before you were 14, when things started to get really serious, had you had any issues younger in life? Like when were you diagnosed with uh, epilepsy? So I was diagnosed with epilepsy at, I believe it was actually 19 because okay. um, I didn't bring up the possibility of epilepsy until my mom told me that she had it. Um, mm. And so I didn't really think that like that was a possibility and mine doesn't present like in the same way that other people's does. Cause I have like focal aware seizures. So sometimes I'm kind of aware and able to even like communicate while I'm having like the seizure symptoms. Um, And so it just wasn't like in my scope of like thought. So when I was born, I was born with a hole in my heart Mm. and that's fairly common from what I understand, but it didn't close. And usually with, with babies, it closes pretty quickly Mine stayed open like well into elementary school to the point where they wanted to do like cardiac surgery. Um, and I didn't actually end up getting the surgery because like right when they wanted to do it, it closed, but it ended up causing an irregular heartbeat, which my mom was like never told could cause issues. And it's like only now I'm realizing can cause issues. Mm. Um, and then like, a little later, I ended up having like a tremor in my hand, which I still have, and like a small tick that my family would always call like the shiver because it was always like triggered when I'm cold. Mm. Um, so like it would be cold outside and my whole body would just kind of shake for a quick second and it was just kind of out of my control, which unfortunately that ended up progressing into more of a full body jerk. Um, my whole entire head jerks back and I have like a vocal tick that kind of goes with that. Um, but it doesn't happen too often. And then I have like little facial ticks. Um, and then I also would notice things like, and this was another diagnosis I didn't really mention cause it's not, it's not too severe, but it's just still frustrating that it wasn't caught soon, which is like asthma. Um, when I was a kid on like snow days, I remember I would like try to run and play around with other kids and I was really fit. And I remember just, it felt like my, my chest was getting crushed because one of my biggest triggers for asthma is, um, like the cold. And so I remember like, it just would feel like my chest was getting crushed and I would also have like random pains growing up and like sensory issues. I remember there was a time and my mom swears up and down that this was a dream, but it probably wasn't. She just doesn't remember it. Um, where my legs wouldn't work. Mm. I just woke up one morning and I was telling my mom, like, my legs are so heavy that they won't even work. 
and I, I was probably only five. Um, but it was always just like these random isolated events for the most part, unless it was something like that persistent tick or like the, the cold and the crushing pain in my chest from the cold. Anything that ever happened was always kind of like a one-off thing that would happen once every couple of months or something. And then it got swept under the rug so often that as a kid, I just thought like every kid had these problems. Sure. And so I started telling myself that anytime I would have like a severe pain, I'd be like, Oh, every kid just feels this, you know? And I was like in elementary school, like gaslighting myself. I was basically <laughs> like taught to gaslight myself. Um, so I just stopped telling adults. I stopped telling my parents. I stopped telling nurses at school. Um, I stopped telling my friends at school because none of them believed me. Um, and one thing that I really loved as a kid was sports. Um, so I was really, really hyper flexible and I liked to like show up, show that off to my friends in like elementary school. Uh, I really liked volleyball and skateboarding BMX. Um, was very passionate about that stuff. And eventually I ended up like my knees started locking in place and this was probably around fifth grade they would like crack and snap and like pop out of place, pop back in place. Mm. Like it was just kind of a sudden issue. And my mom brought me to the doctor after it was happening for a couple of months. And I kept like badgering her about it. And, uh, I was diagnosed by a pediatric, like an orthopedic pediatric surgeon with osteochondritis desiccans, which I kind of question if that was, I've never heard of that before. Um, I don't know a lot about it, but what they told me was, was going on with my knees was the bones were like deteriorating. So the, my kneecaps were jagged and little pieces of my bones were falling off and just floating around inside my knees. Ouch. And then like, yeah. And they would like catch on each other. So like my kneecaps, every time I would like try to move, they would catch because they were jagged and they were also slipping out of place because I was hyper flexible and nobody really realized that. Mm. Um, and so eventually I was told that I like had to stop doing sports and that was heartbreaking as a child because I was such an active kid. Um, and I was told like, you can't do sports. You at first it was like three months and I couldn't do it. And I just like made myself worse. And I wasn't really explained like the implications of what I was doing to my body. Um, and so then I was told I had to get a double knee surgery, which was like an extremely invasive surgery from what I understand. But my mom opted out of it because she didn't want me to end up like my aunt. Cause my aunt has knee problems and got knee surgery. And it's like, 20 years still recovering kind of situation. Like she just never recovered. So my mom didn't want it to be a similar problem. Um, and so I just unfortunately stopped doing sports uh, completely. And that was just how my childhood ended up looking. So I turned a lot to like art and that's when like art really came into my life. Um, but then once I like I hit puberty, I started getting like severely heavy periods and like dizziness. Um, I was always really underweight my whole life 
And I even thought, cause like there was like a rumor going around school that I was anorexic. And so I actually convinced myself that I had anorexia because I just never thought in my head that I was like, I could be physically sick. I always thought that it was something maybe mental going on with myself because it just was like the only thing I was educated on. That's like all they talked about in like health class and, you know, stuff like that. Sure. And so I ended up thinking for a while that I had like anorexia um, and I, I just didn't know it. So I thought it was a compulsion of some sort. Um, I was always really pale. Like a lot of people commented that I was super, super white. Um, and a lot of people were, like I said, were either like spreading rumors that I was anorexic or jealous of how skinny I was. So I just had like this strange perspective of like who I was mm. and what was going on. Um, and then once I was 14, like in the beginning of high school, just like, bam, like everything hit and like everything changed. Um, so I had like a really specific isolated incident where I was like cooking food with my ex-boyfriend and all of a sudden I got like really, really hot. Like my whole body flushed over and I couldn't stand up. Like I kind of like fell to the floor and he was like, are you okay? And I was like, Oh, I'm fine. Um, and I like just couldn't like my body was so weak and I couldn't move properly. And I started to panic. It was like one of the first times where I started to feel anxiety um, because I was just like, what's going on with my body? And I tried to like pass it off and he ended up having to go home like shortly after it started. So I was like, okay, bye. Um, like I might call you if you know, this gets worse because this is really freaking me out. Yeah. It was like shortly after he left, I was like walking into my living room and like, went to take a step and tripped because I was like not able to function. Like my body just wasn't working properly and it just felt like my legs were out of sync. Like one of my arms just like didn't feel like it belonged on my body. Like my vision started going in and out. Um, like everything was spinning. It was a lot of like, just like a dump of like neurological like symptoms. Mm -hmm. And then I ended up just going into like full panic mode because it just got so severe to the point where I was like, I was a kid. Like I just thought I was dying. Um, and so I just like ran up to my bedroom cause nobody was home and I laid in bed and I called my ex-boyfriend and I was like, I'm dying. <laughs> Can you call 911? Wow. <laughs> cause like I was scared to do it myself. Um, and the paramedics came and it was one of the first times where I was just told, Oh, it's just anxiety kid. You'll be fine. But wow. by the time they got there, I was convulsing and I couldn't tell them who I was. Like, that was something I remember is like, I was coming out of like a convulsive type state and they had said like, what's your name and like all that kind of stuff. Cause you know, they usually have to do that to see like how your psychiatric state is. And I just remember looking at him and being like, I don't know. Like, and he's like, you know where you're at? And I'm like, I don't know. What, was this a seizure that you were having? That's what I'm assuming. Hmm. Cause whatever was going on is a lot, was a lot severe that a lot more severe 
than I have now. Yeah. Uh, because like now I'm medicated and I'm mm. on seizure medications. But when I was a kid, it was just like my body was having a free for all because nobody was monitoring what was going on. I wasn't on medication and I was just like surviving basically. Yeah. Um, and so I was told it was a panic attack. Um, even though I like wasn't having any form of significant stress. And I remember the whole night just obsessing being like, what, what stress caused something like that? What is this? Like I could, I remember not being able to stop thinking about it. And then I was like, whatever, I'll survive because I did have other incidents growing up similar to that. I'd say maybe three, three times. Um, like, I had one that was specifically triggered from caffeine when I was five years old and the same, it was like the same situation. And then I had another one and it was in history class when I was in middle school. Um, and another one like around Christmas around the same year, my mom actually brought me to the emergency room for that one. And it every single time people just pass it off as anxiety. So that's what I thought anxiety attacks feel like. Wow. That's interesting. You're just like, okay, well that's what anxiety is. You know, it's uh, not being able yeah. to use my legs. That's really, but it's so interesting. It's so unfair because yes, like having a episode like that would cause you to be anxious. So it's, it's yeah. really hard to, t to tell doctors like, no, I'm not anxious at all. It's like, yeah, I am anxious because my body stopped working and that made me feel anxious. But when you just even say the word anxiety at all, doctors are so quick to just jump mm -hmm. on that and say, well, that's it. That's it. That's all it is. Go home. You're fine. I mean, looking back oh on it God. now, yeah. like, how, do you have anger looking back on that now that you have this um, ep epilepsy diagnosis along with all this other, you know, mishmash of, of conditions that are happening all at the same time and you're finally getting recognized for it when you look back are you mad about it oh yeah i'm that's something i'm working through in therapy hmm. because my anger especially this year specifically has just been like over the top like i've never been an angry person my whole life and i don't think like the amount of anger that I feel now is definitely not healthy. Mm, <laughs> um, I'm yeah. sure that it's normal. At least my therapist says it's normal. Um, but like anytime I'm like in a hospital situation, like especially emergency departments, I still get treated poorly. And it's because they still see that anxiety past. Like they see anxiety as chart. a previous diagnosis. Yeah. And they're like, because they, they were tossing between the anxiety and the somatic symptom disorder, which makes it like even worse. Um, and there are times where I'll go into the emergency department for things that I am diagnosed with. Um, and they will literally take one look at me and be like, I think you'll be okay. I think we're going to send you home for the night. Ugh. And it's moments like that that make me so angry because I know when I go home and I'm going to look in my chart and see what that like final diagnosis is, it's going to be anxiety. Um, like that's happened to me kind of recently where I had a really bad seizure on a new medication and I stopped breathing. And that's not 
like how my seizures are usually like presenting. What I've been told of my chronic health issues is if they change and they don't present the way that they have for the last like 10 years, um, that I need to go to the emergency department. Yeah. Um, but sometimes when I do these, these doctors will be like, Oh, it's just anxiety. Um, the one that I hate seeing the most is the doctor actually taking the time to like write in my chart, anxious appearing female Ugh. sitting obese in the emergency department. Like they always have to throw in that oh I'm overweight. God. That's so upsetting. It's like, which makes me angry too, because if they, if they just asked, like if they just knew why I was overweight, for example, like I said earlier, I've been underweight my whole entire life. Um, and the only reason I gained weight was epilepsy medication. Mm. And it's something that I can't change. Yeah. Um, sometimes when I see like new specialists or providers for like the more mystery issues I have going on that aren't diagnosed yet, um, they'll mention my weight. They'll be like, have you tried to lose weight? Like, <laughs> no. Yeah. Uh, it's it's so upsetting. Here, like, I, it's just, I always tell them like, I, I've, I've only been overweight for a couple of years, but I've been disabled for like, you know, 10 plus. Like, yeah. I, I'm just it's so upsetting to hear these things over and over from people on this podcast. You know, the same things like, have you tried losing weight? Have you tried not being anxious? Yeah. You know, it's like you, you, you meet a doctor and you've known them for three minutes and they've completely sussed out your entire life. And they know exactly how to fix all your problems. And it just happens to be insanely offensive and not helpful every time. <laughs> it's just like, exactly. oh, it's so upsetting. I'm sorry. Okay. I derailed your story. Um, take me back to your story. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So when I was 14 years old, um, those episodes just kept happening. So instead of it being like those isolated three events that I had, I went back to school, like, and I remember just like walking down the hallway and the whole entire hallways would be swaying back and forth. Like I was on like a boat. My heart would be like racing out of my chest. My arms would be trembling and I like couldn't even see straight. There were points where I would think in my head, like, where am I? Like, I don't even know where I'm at right now. And my friends were super concerned. Like teachers were really concerned. I would actually have teachers come up to me in class and be like, are you okay? You look really sick. Mm. And that alone would like send me into a panic because I just didn't know what was going on with my body. Um, I remember one time in cooking class, a teacher walked up to me and was like, are you okay? You look really sick. And I actually ended up bolting out of the classroom and just like crying because I just was like so overwhelmed with stress. It had gotten to the point where I started having these episodes at school and I would have to like run out of class and like go hide somewhere like in a bathroom or like one time I hid in a ditch and like had one of these episodes and would have to call my ex-boyfriend and he would have to like come like rub my back and like tell me everything was going to be okay. And then he would literally have to carry me off campus and call my dad and my dad would have to come pick me up. And I was like a straight A student. I like never missed a day of class in my life. So I started feeling like also this immense guilt that I was failing. And like, I was, I was, that was basically it. Like I just had this immense guilt that I was a failure. Um, 
some people had like a speculation that I was like using drugs because of like my quote, like erratic behavior um, or like the extreme shift in uh, personality because I was so shut off and like, I didn't want to talk to any of my friends because of what was happening. And eventually I had to drop out of school, which was really heartbreaking because I loved school a lot and I just couldn't do it anymore. And that's the first time I ever became bed bound because I couldn't even get up. Like it just started progressing so much to the point where outside of those episodes that I was having, I was also having severe fatigue where I was sleeping up to 15 hours, but I was also like screaming in my sleep. And like, I was just, it was awful. Um, How old were you at this point? Are you still 14? This was around 15. So it was just like, it was a steady decline into 15 years old. Um, And then my, my boyfriend at the time, he would come over and take care of me while my parents were at work. Um, he ended up dropping out of school as well to do that, um, wow. which unfortunately he turned out to be a really bad person. Mm. <laughs> but at the time I thought he was like my, my prince in shining armor. Yeah. Um, and honestly, I was still lucky to have somebody in my life that was doing that for me at the time. So I'm, I'm very glad but him and my parents ended up being my full-time caregivers. Um, and the doctors still thought that it was anxiety. They were basically wow. telling my parents, oh, this is the worst case of anxiety we have ever seen. Wow. I had actually requested my records um, about a year ago, which is not something I suggest for everybody to do in my case, because that can be some brutal stuff to read. Yeah. But I remember seeing them them say, like she's one of the worst cases of anxiety we have ever seen or, or possibly like one of the worst cases of anxiety, like ever. Hmm. Um, and so I was like, that's one of the things that makes me really angry. Like looking back on my past is like, why, why didn't they run tests? Why didn't they take my blood? Why didn't they do a CT scan? They didn't do anything. Didn't anything. They didn't. Wow. Wow. They just and told my mom, like it's anxiety and sent me to a psychiatrist. That's mind blowing. It's just like the unwillingness to even let in the possibility that maybe they had gotten the wrong diagnosis. They're just like doubling down on, on this false narrative that they've created for themselves. And they are the people that you're going into for help. And like, what are you supposed to do as a 15 year old kid? You know, it's like, it's a horrible, horrible situation to find yourself in. Exactly. And eventually I ended up going into what I like to call remission um, because these issues kind of bounce off of each other. So like if my myalgic encephalomyelitis is really bad, usually that'll cause my epilepsy to be really bad and my tics to be really bad and and my POTS symptoms to be really bad. Um, And so when, when one thing is triggered, it kind of triggers everything. And then I kind of suspect that it's my ME, my myalgic encephalomyelitis, that is what goes into remission and then out of remission. And kind of that's kind of how the waves of other conditions yeah. follow. Yeah. Um, and so it was kind of an almost overnight thing where I just woke up one morning and felt better. I was Your like, body was like okay. running a 
it's like running a process or it's like it's a computer yeah. like debugging something and then it's like okay it we're done so you can strange. go back to your life now <laughs> yeah it was so strange and it was hard to to live life again yeah. because my parents immediately wanted me back in school they were like perfect now you can go back to school because i was on a lot of mental health meds so we all thought that you know, I was in like remission with an anxiety disorder. Mm. Um, we didn't know that it was ME and all these other conditions caused by, you know, more than likely Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Um, and so when I went back to school, it didn't take very long for like things to start declining again because I was overworking myself physically and mentally. Um, and if you're familiar with like ME-CFS, there's that whole like post-exertional malaise thing. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of just like the story of my life for a long time. I just kept diving back into normal life after being bed bound for a good stint of time. And then just watching myself like fail in my eyes and decline again. Um, eventually I ended up dropping out of school and moving in with a partner, like I moved completely at 18 and I was in kind of a remission state and I got confident that I was never going to be sick again and that it was never going to happen again. And I had my quote anxiety under control. I always told myself that. Um, and I ended up relapsing while living with him and it was awful because he was one of those really like hyper spiritual people that believes that if you have like a positive mindset, drink kombucha and like work out a bunch that you're going to be healed. And so uh, he was like, your anxiety will be healed if you do all of these things. And so I, I have to just say, I accidentally unintentionally actually face palmed just now <laughs> when you said that for people who can't see us right now, that was an actual face palm moment for me. Sorry, continue. It's okay. Like, oh my gosh. It was awful. It was, uh, he was so extreme. Like he was one of those extremists. It was almost cult-like. And so I dealt with that for a year where I was, I was probably at my sickest. And so I was bed bound most of the time that I lived with him. And not only was his family like really abusive and toxic, as well as him. Um, but also he was pushing those ideologies onto me so much to the point where I actually attached myself to them and believed them as well. Yeah. So I was like a vegan. I was like working out as much as I could when I could to the point where I was like hurting myself. Um, like I was really spiritual, like praying all the time and mm -hmm. like thought that if I never thought a negative thing that I would get healed. It didn't happen. Yeah. Um, spoiler alert. <laughs> um, and at the same time, I was just getting worse and worse, probably because I was overworking myself during an episode. And I was having like convulsions and seizures and still undiagnosed. You know, I still didn't know what was going on. And so I was in and out of the emergency department all the time. And it was the first time that they really like called me like a frequent flyer. Like they really had like this negative outlook on me and I did not understand. 
like I was like, please help me. (laughs) And every time I would come in, they would just look at me with like this, this disgust. Like they were just so upset that I was there. Um, It was probably the worst episode of POTS I was ever having. So I didn't quite know what was going on with that either because I was fainting and losing consciousness a lot during this time. Um, And that was really scary. Uh, Fainting leads to a lot of anxiety for me. And so that was hard. And I would go to the emergency department and they would be like, you're fine, like go home. And I like couldn't even walk. They would have to put me in a wheelchair wheel me to my ex-boyfriend's car and then he would pretty much have to drag me into his vehicle and then pick me up and put me in his bed and that was like my whole life living with him for a year almost um it got to the point where like i i was having like suicidal ideation because i didn't want to be around anymore Hmm. and that was really rough um eventually when I went back into a remission type state, I left and I didn't live with him anymore. And eventually over time, you know, years passed, I finally found like the chronic illness community on accident. And it was some time after I was told I might have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. By that, uh, the eye doctor. Yeah. yeah. And that's when I started realizing like, I probably have some things going on and like, it's probably not awesome. So I actually started advocating for myself and I went to a doctor and was like, listen, I have this laundry list of symptoms and I've been dealing with it since I was a kid and there's no way this is anxiety. And I said, you know, there's no doubt that I have anxiety, but I I truly believe it's secondary to what I'm dealing with. Um, good for you. And that was very hard. And like, I drove myself borderline insane, like trying to advocate for myself because I really don't like the judgment of other people. Like that's something that really bothers me. And I felt like I was constantly being judged. Like I was going to like, that's, that's how it felt. It felt like I was like going to court and I was sitting in front of a judge and being like, hear me out please (laughs) feel that way you know like yeah eventually once my mom told me about the epilepsy thing like in passing of conversation i was like well you should have told me that because then once i looked up epilepsy myself i was like you know it sounds like part of what i have going on and so i brought that up to him and he sent me to a neurologist in Seattle. It was actually before I lived in Seattle. Um, I lived like two, two hours away at the time. And they actually initially diagnosed me with functional neurological disorder because Mm. they kind of did the same thing where it was like, Oh, it's just anxiety, but they wanted to put kind of their own little spin on it. (laughs) Um, I think that functional neurological disorder is a real condition. I just think that sometimes it's again, like anxiety where they'll kind of just smack the label on somebody who has neurological issues and be like, Oh, it's because of your trauma. Yeah. I, I, I agree with you. I feel like FND 
as a diagnosis that is applied with respect is very different. <laughs> um, and by that, I mean, so, like doctors who have done a full workup, done everything they can think of and can't find an answer and say, okay, well, we want to give you, uh, we want to at least acknowledge that the, the symptoms you are having are real, that there is a functional neurological issue. Um, and we want to try to help you through that. That's one thing. And the other side of it, which is what you're talking about, which I have also experienced back, you know, when it was called conversion disorder, which is, uh, we can't find anything wrong with you. So we're going to tell you that this is what you have and send you out the door. Um, and, or even without even, you know, for me, they did some tests first, but sometimes without even doing tests, they'll do that to people. And that's very, very different. You know, it's, it's interesting how the same diagnosis can sometimes have completely different ramifications on the patient, depending on who it is that is doing the workup. Yeah, exactly. And I didn't get a workup. I got that standard, like, touch your finger to your nose and let me look at your pupils. And they're like, yeah. oh, okay, well, we don't think you have MS. That was my biggest concern, um, that and epilepsy, um, because I was having a lot of, like, MS-type symptoms as well, just, like, on a day-to-day -day basis, um, which now I'm realizing is probably more of like the ME situation because ME mm. can cause a lot of neurological symptoms. Absolutely. Um, but I had thought that I had MS. And so that was one thing I was like, Hey, can you guys like see if I have this? <laughs> and they were not receptive at all. But at the time I didn't really realize that. I just thought, you know, Oh, she must've just not seen what needed to be seen. And I must just be fine. And so again, like this was like year five now of being ill and they weren't doing blood tests. They weren't doing scans. They weren't doing any form of workup. Wow. They were just telling me you have FND like, but at the time I was like so excited because I didn't know what FND was. I was just like, I have a diagnosis. This explains <laughs> <everything>. Yeah. <laughs> that totally makes I sense. I was so excited. I was so excited. I thought like, finally, like it's not anxiety. And um, it's, it's kind of rebranded anxiety, just more extreme. Like in those case scenarios, that's their way of being like, no, it's just, you know, conversion of your, your trauma. Mm -hmm. Um, and then finally, like, I just, I saw a good doctor that like listened, like just genuinely listened and you would never guess she was chronically ill herself. Wow. And that's Amazing. what it took. Oh my God. And, um, and if I didn't see her, she was just like a primary healthcare doctor, but I went into her office and she's like, so what scans have you had? What, you know, what specialists have you seen? Um, you know, let's run down these issues. And I told her, and at this time I was just mentally broken. Like I was an absolute depressed and anxious train wreck. Like I was sh like physically shaking, just going into her office because I just didn't want to deal with being told that it was functional neurological disorder or all in my head by this point. And by the grace of whatever is out there, she was like, yeah, uh, actually I have, chronic health issues and I fully believe that what you have going on is not functional neurological disorder and is not mental and I was like okay <laughs> I was like that's a lot and then she just started going like down the list of things that she thought it possibly could be 
Um, she also mentioned Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, but she felt as though that diagnosis would have been too hard to like achieve with how serious she thought everything else was in the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, she felt like since I was under medicated is kind of how she put it and under diagnosed um, that she felt like putting off Ehlers-Danlos was probably for the better in that time. That was just kind of her opinion. Um, but she herself kind of was like, yeah, you, you have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And she was like, but I'm just not going to worry about it right now. Um, and she started going down the comorbidities of Ehlers-Danlos. And the first one was uh, ME-CFS. And she was like asking me all the diagnostic questions and I completely passed the bill. Like I had every single symptom. Um, to, and then she told me basically that I was um, not very severe, but severe. So there's like different levels of it. Um, had you had, uh, I know there's a lot of research being done around myalgic encephalomyelitis potentially being mm-hmm. some sort of post-viral illness. Had you had like a serious illness earlier on in life that you had had a long time to recover from? Yes. Wow. So actually before these, the major, major symptoms started at 14, it was probably about three months beforehand. I had a really bad case of strep. So it, it uh, makes sense. It's so frustrating. It's just like right <laughs> there, know. you know, it's <laughs> and the doctors even knew that was like the most irritating oh my part. God. My mom brought me in to the doctor because my strep was so bad that I like couldn't speak and was in a lot of pain. So my mom brought me in to get me like cough medicine. Um, so like they knew, like it wasn't that they didn't know. Um, it, it just went right over their heads. Like they just, it was, it was strange, yeah. but she, so the first thing she diagnosed me with was the ME. And then she was like, you know, with ME, a lot of people have POTS. And she's like, you know what that is? And I was mentioned like an emergency room doctor told me once that, they thought I had POTS like years prior because I was like fainting on and off, but they didn't do a proper workup and they just sent me on my way. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was like, yeah, I heard of it once, (laughs) but nobody did any workup or anything. And so she did a workup for POTS and she's like, you have POTS. And I was like, oh. And so that was kind of where we started. And then ever since then, everything's just been falling into place. Um, and now I'm just fighting for that Ehlers-Danlos diagnosis and it's a lot harder to achieve than you think. Like, yeah, I kind of am kicking myself in the butt for not keeping that initial like genetics appointment when I was a kid <laughs> with the five year wait. I, yeah, mm-hmm. I ended up, you know, finding help to pay out of pocket to get genetic testing because my, my, you know, I have great medical care at the university of Washington, but I, couldn't get the genetics p- department to do a full genome sequencing because, you know, I, I'm, I'm in this, you know, similar boat where I've been sick on and off my whole life without really understanding why still, although we have some great theories at this point. And for a while there, I was just like, we got to check my genetics, you know, like no one's ever done this. We yeah. got to do it. And the, the clinic was just like, well, it's, you know, really expensive and, I don't think you're going to find anything, so we're not going to approve it. Um, so I just like had to go out of pocket and do that, and it ended up. <laughs> I ended up having one um, 
one mutation of unknown significance. <laughs> so, but I, we're pretty sure it means nothing, you know, because of where the gene is located and what my symptoms are. It doesn't seem to be related. Um, but who knows, you know, but anyway, yeah, it's so frustrating how when you're in a mystery situation and there are, if there's any rock that can be unturned or like turned over to look underneath and there might be a diagnosis under that rock and the doctors won't do it for one reason or another, it's just like, why, you know, like, why I don't understand. I know. Like I, I keep bringing it up. So since I've moved to Seattle, I moved here about a year and a half ago. Um, it, there's a lot better healthcare here than where I was living. Um, but unfortunately I lost that amazing PCP that diagnosed me mm. with everything that I have. So I've been on this journey of finding a new PCP and like when I do find one, they end up leaving and it's just, I have horrible luck with it. Yeah. But every time I get a new PCP, I bring up the Ehlers downloads and like, I've been kind of on this long mission of like getting someone to diagnose Ehlers downloads for me. And I was like, are you comfortable with doing it? Because from my understanding, any physician can technically evaluate for at least a hypermobile type. And every single one of them will do like the evaluation. I'll pass the evaluation and then they'll say, but I'm not really comfortable. So we're just going to say hypermobile. Uh, I can't remember what that is, like the hypermobile syndrome or Hi like hypermobile the, spectrum disorder. Yeah, that's kind of what it is right now. And one of them kind of made the excuse that they're worried about VEDS um, because I've had cardiac issues. Mm. Like I've had long QTC syndrome, which I don't even think is correlated or like the hole in my heart and stuff like that. Yeah. And they're like, since you've had cardiac stuff, we want to make sure you don't have VEDS. And that's um, a genetic test. Yeah. And so they're sending me to um, genetics, but it's not going to be until the beginning of 2024. And I've already been waiting a year. Wow. So why? Yeah. I don't, what, what? I mean, so I'm in Seattle. What clinic are you going to? So I'm getting sent to Ian Pullman, I believe is his name. No, Ian Wallace. I'm getting sent to Ian Wallace um, in Pullman, Washington. And he specializes in Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. He's a ah. genetic counselor. Okay. Um, I've heard super good things about him. Um, I also have a referral to like Harperview's genetics. Uh -huh. But when I had called, they had told me that they aren't seeing patients for like the hypermobile type. They're only seeing for like VES. So I've been kind of considering also kind of getting like a double appointment in the meantime, just to make yeah. sure I don't have VES because I know it. that kind of. <laughs> yeah do it there's no reason not to and I, I can't say enough good about UW University of Washington Medical Center I started out at one medical clinic and I didn't have great luck there I went to Pacific Medical Center I completely exhausted all of their resources and came out of it completely empty-handed as far as a diagnosis is concerned Act after having been misdiagnosed with Lyme disease um, oh, wow. went down like the naturopathic route for a while and then out of desperation, started over completely with the University of Washington Medical Center. And day one, ever since then, has been great. Um, I've had a couple of bad specialist appointments along the way, but my primary care has been exceptional. Just the first random person that I met ended up being like the best primary care doctor I'd ever seen. Although I loved my childhood primary care. He was absolutely fantastic. But 
um, this guy I'm seeing now is incredible. I, I've been hooked up with so many great specialists. And then I found this other primary care doctor who is uh, acting as my diagnostician because she's really interested in mystery cases like mine. Um, and I'm still seeing the original primary guy, uh, primary care guy as well. So I'm just, I'm overwhelmed with like how good my medical care is now. And it's still so hard. It is still so hard with good care. The waits between appointments are sometimes excruciatingly long. Try, I'm still mm-hmm. trying to get tested for small fiber neuropathy, which I have shown signs of on my dysautonomia testing and would explain a lot of what's happening with my mobility and a bunch of other issues that I've had. And there's only like one person in the whole, in the whole medical center that can do the test and I can't get them to call me back. They called oh, me no. once and I missed the call. And that was like a month ago. And I've been calling, you know, I, over and over. And I just can't get them to call me back to schedule the appointment. Um, and that's at a place where I'm getting really, really good care. You know, if you're at a place where you're not getting good care, these things are next to impossible. Next to impossible to get anything good done. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that lead in Pullman sounds really great. And that guy sounds awesome. But you should not have to wait for another year to find out if you have this genetic condition. Yeah, tell Harborview that you're looking into VEDS. That's the vascular Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And just you know, get, get in for testing. Why not? If you, if you can get in and if your insurance will cover it, you know, 100%. Get that test result done. Seeing this specialist, this genetic um, counselor, is going to be fantastic um, a year from now. But like you could make a lot of progress between now and then by at least getting the testing done. Yeah, absolutely. Especially with how dangerous the other types of like Ehlers-Danlos syndrome are. Yeah. Um, they're like just dangerous on their own. Like even yeah. without comorbidities, hypermobile type from my understanding is more so dangerous because of like the comorbidities that can happen with it. Like gastroparesis or um, some people get like, I believe it's called MCAS. I'm not too familiar Mast with cell that. cell activation syndrome. That's the other thing I'm being tested for. <laughs> yeah. I'm very I'll familiar with that all of a sudden. Um, yeah, yeah. Don't get me started. But yeah, yeah. I mean, the hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos is the only one that doesn't have a genetic test, but you, I've talked to a bunch of people with it. And yes, a lot of those um, comorbidities can be extremely difficult and even dangerous. But just living with, you know, a connective tissue disease that can cause, you know, issues with joints, chronic pain, like all, those are all various, very serious things. You know, just because something yeah. is not dangerous in the fact that it is not actively, like you're not about to die from it, doesn't mean that you don't need care and help for that thing. Take it from me, someone who's been un- undiagnosed for a very long time, um, I, you know, doctors wouldn't even help me like I, I applied to go to the to the Mayo Clinic and they refused to accept me because I wasn't in dire, like about to die situation, so they wouldn't yeah. even see me. You know, I mean, the same yeah, yeah. Like the the medical system is strapped with people who are chronically ill, and yeah, I just you know because I host this show, people in my life are often curious to talk to me about what they're experiencing with chronic illness and stuff like that, and. I keep hearing the same thing from a lot of people, which is like, something is wrong, you know, like something is wrong. Something like it's, is it in the drinking water? Is it gluten? Is it 
5G, you know, like I hear a lot of conspiracy theories, um, which I, I have no, I have absolutely no idea, but like, there's something going on where people are getting sick, you know, people are getting sick mm-hmm. and staying sick and we don't really understand it. And then COVID on top of all that, another source of long-term chronic illness. Um, yeah. My, my personal theory is that it's something different for everyone, you know, is that like there is, I don't think there's one unifying theory of chronic illness. I really don't. Um, I think that myalgic encephalomyelitis, this whole post viral illness thing where people can be like completely healthy and then you get a virus of some kind and then everything changes for the rest of your life. That is happening to a lot of people. Genetic disorders, mm-hmm. you know, this is that's happening to a lot of people. Um, for you know, for me, the 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 current rabbit hole that I'm going down is whole ma- mast cell activation thing. Um, for me, it seems to be very much dictated by what I eat. And that's what I've been really experimenting with going to like the lowest histamine diet I can find. And my pain levels go way down when I do that. And that's a a revelation for me. Someone who's been sick for a long time. I've tried every diet out there, you know, but I'd never heard of a low histamine diet until recently. And from this podcast, it's how I heard about it. And that's the one that I tried. I'm like, wow, my symptoms are now better. You know, this is crazy. And Oh, for, wow. Yeah, for some people, that's not going to work. Um, you know, going yeah. gluten-free helps for me. It's not going to help other people. So, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I don't know what, <laughs> what soapbox I'm on right now, except to say that, like, this is becoming such a, cr- a common story. Uh, and the commonality beyond the illness part, the commonality of being gaslit by doctors, being mistreated, you obviously have medical PTSD, you know? I have it, too. Yeah. Like, that's not right. You know, that's not the way that this should work, that the people you go to for help cause lifelong trauma that you then have to talk to your therapist about to try to work your anger back down because you're so mad at the way you've been treated because people won't even like take the time to take you seriously when you when you're having what are probably seizures. I mean, that's so incredibly upsetting. Oh, yeah, it is so upsetting. And then it affects future care. Because, like, for example, with my POTS, one of the best treatments for me with my POTS has been IV treatment, which is unfortunately considered the most invasive treatment. Um, I've been through all the other treatments for it, and I am very, very medication sensitive due to my ME. And so I just can't be on a lot of, like, different types of medication. Um, And my veins are so bad that they want to like play support and I've never had like a surgery before or anything like that. And they want to, they want to place it like upcoming this January. They actually wanted to place it months ago, but the medical PTSD that I have like going under anesthesia for the first time, trusting doctors enough to do something like that when they've done things to me that causes me to not trust them is such a scary experience to the point where I actually like, ran out of the office last time I was supposed to get it done and was like, I'll schedule this for a different time. Yeah. Um, like just getting a port and like getting my IV treatment stuff all like scheduled and, and calling the home health places to get like a nurse to come to my house to get all this figured out. It's been such a stressful experience and they really are like being like good about it they're actually trying to help me um with certain things like this but with with the ptsd that i have now from the past it's it's hard to even accept help now 
because everything is just still so scary, you know? Absolutely. Did With that primary care doctor that you saw for a while that was so great, um, <laughs> did she run this whole, like, did you ever get a full neurological workup with like MRIs and, and all that stuff? Yeah. So she ended up getting me two MRIs. Unfortunately, I couldn't tolerate contrast. Um, I had a very severe reaction to it. Oh, yeah. Um, (laughs) Sorry. I'll tell you a story about that in a second. Please keep continue. And so I don't, I don't have it with contrast, unfortunately. I wish I did. Um, I have now 40 plus CT scans of my head. Wow. Um, I actually, at one point, like, I don't know how accurate it is, but a nurse was like genuinely concerned with how many she was seeing in my chart because she was like, you know, radiation isn't great. (laughs) And I was like, yeah. So I try to not get them at this point. Um, unless like really needed. Um, she ran all sorts of blood tests, like every blood test that you can think of. She was running. Um, she was checking for even like things that it didn't seem like at all. Like she wanted to check if I had type one diabetes or like sickle cell anemia because I have chronic anemia, for example. Um, she, she had tried doing like anemia, like IV infusions for, um, iron for my anemia. Um, unfortunately seizures, but she was like, she was trying everything she was doing so good um and it's heartbreaking truly that i haven't seen her in a year and a half because um that was definitely like the best care that i ever had and just that short amount like i saw her for about a year and a half and in that short amount of time i got so many diagnoses i got so much treatment like i'm on a lot of medications that to this day still benefit me um my quality of life has increased by quite a bit and I had such a low quality of life um, like previous. And it's so hard to find somebody that will go as like get as involved with my care as she was. I think that she just got really personally involved in my case because of the condition she has. Um, she wouldn't tell me what she has. I don't know if they're allowed to do that, but she told me that just, she kind of had something similar going on. Um, she also like heavily suspected I had like an autoimmune disease, like my ANA tested positive while she was doing all the tests really? and stuff. It did. Yeah. And I can't get in with rheumatology. Oh yeah, man. Um, this is frustrating. They won't let me in. <laughs> yeah, with they, a they positive can't... ANA test, you can't get into rheumatology. That's not right. Go, yeah, go to I'm University sure. of Washington. I'm telling you, like, if if your insurance will, if your insurance will, they won't let me in. Uh, they declined me three times. You dub Swedish declined me twice. Yeah. Um, wow. Their reasoning was so strange. Uh, I was already, I I have already been built a custom wheelchair because I'm, I'm in my wheelchair. Unfortunately, about eighty percent of the time now. Mm-hmm. Um. And their reasoning was that they did not feel that it was medically necessary for me to see them and that they believed I was going to see them to get a wheelchair. I was like, I don't know where they pulled that from. Yeah, that's so weird. I was like, I'm so confused. 
Um, and I was like, no, I'm trying to see you guys for positive ANA. And they're like, oh, sorry. Well, we're just seeing like certain patients right now um, due to like COVID because they said that they don't see a, like a whole lot of patients anymore. Um, and yeah, so I've, you it's know, been a people told me for probably seven years that I should switch to UW. And I resisted for a long time. And then I tried and they didn't want to see me for one reason or another. But then eventually I was just like, I just want to establish new care with a new primary care physician at UW. And that's how I got in. And that changed my entire life. And I, it sounds like you're hitting a lot of walls that are not okay. Like you should absolutely, yeah. you should absolutely be able to see a rheumatologist with a positive ANA test. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's, it sounds like with everything you're saying, I, I, I obviously am not a medical professional, but um, I've learned a lot about <laughs> chronic illness. And with everything you're saying, it, it does sound to me like there could be something that is, that is there that is not even discovered yet, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, the Ehlers-Danlos is a great lead, but I've also learned um, not to put all your eggs into one basket ever. Because I have done that a couple times where I was sure I had something. And then, like, the last time this happened to me was with Wilson's disease, where we yeah. found abnormal copper levels. And I saw a hepatologist, which is a liver doctor, and she's like, yeah, I think you might have this disease. And it's like, oh, my God, this explains everything. This has to be it. And I go on the yeah. low copper diet, and I get better. And I start taking the the zinc acetate or whatever it was that you're supposed to take for, um, for Wilson's and I get better. And then I, then we keep checking all the copper numbers and they're not lining up with Wilson's disease. Find out that the doctor originally made a mistake when she calculated my copper numbers, ended up getting a liver biopsy that was negative and, oh, wow. but, but showed a, a pattern of, of damage of unknown cause and that was like the the nail in the coffin for Wilson's disease. And I had put all my eggs into that basket. I had already, I, I was like, I know I have this, you know? And then yeah. I didn't. Um, and now, you know, it's, it's what, six months to a year later, I'm on to a completely different disease. And it's, it actually makes sense now why the zinc and why the low copper diet were helpful because it was like zinc can be helpful with uh, all sorts of things. And the low copper yeah. diet was closer to a low histamine diet than the way I was eating before. And the low histamine diet has given me way more benefit than the low copper diet ever did. And I was like, this is it. I have found it. I really think this is it. I cried over it and it wasn't it, you know? So I, yeah. I'm, I, I'm someone that like, I, I might never get that positive test that says this is the thing that you have, you know? For me, it might just be like, diagnosis of exclusion based off of the way that I react to treatment. I think that that could be true for a lot of people out there. Um, yeah. But continuing to like fight and continuing to push on multiple different fronts, you know, I, it, for me, that seems like the best battle strategy against chronic illness is to keep, keep fighting on every front that is even possible because the fear for me is to run out of options and to get to a point where it's like, okay, we have no idea what's wrong with you. We have no idea what to do next. I've been there so many times. It's absolutely devastating. And the idea of hitting that again terrifies me. So I'm always trying to keep balls in the air 
you know, juggling all these different potential diagnoses so that when one is closed off, there's still another potential. Um, and it sounds like, I mean, you know, you have hypermobility, you have all these yeah. comorbidities. It seems very possible that you absolutely could have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. I think that's extremely reasonable. But with a positive ANA test, like, why are we not looking for autoimmune diseases? You know, absolutely yeah. go down that road as well. I, and if you have a medical center that's not giving you good care, doctors that aren't pushing for that for you, cut them loose and try someone else. You know, like you're, you're, the, you're the boss. <laughs> it's your body. You're in charge. And you grew up in a position feeling, being, being made to feel otherwise by doctors who had no business telling you that this was all caused by an anxiety disorder and acting like they're in charge of your body when in fact you are in charge of your body and like there's huge amounts of trauma involved in that and i'm so sorry you had to experience that but i mean you've learned so much about how to advocate for yourself you've taken those first horrible steps to do so and i you know i'm really curious to talk to you in like a year or something um or if you ever get a firm diagnosis of any kind please let me know i'm so curious to hear what what will happen with your story in the future yeah, definitely. I will definitely let you know for sure. Um, yeah, I've definitely been up and down with what I think is going on. My my neurologist even recently was like, oh, I think you might have um, something like stiff person syndrome. Yeah. And he also wanted to see about uh, something called, I'm going to butcher it, but minesthesia gravis or gravis. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And I did not have either. Mm. And I put all my eggs in that MG basket. Mm, yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah. I was like, maybe my, my hemiplegic migraines aren't that because sometimes they have like the one-sided facial drooping um, among a lot of other symptoms I have. And it didn't turn out that way. So I definitely get that for sure. Yeah. So many things look like so many other things. I totally hear you about the CT or the MRI contrast. I'm allergic to CT <laughs> contrast. And after oh, no. I, I had testicular cancer when I was 30 and I had to do um, CT scans twice a year and on like the fourth or fifth time I was injected with the contrast and my airway started to close and I've never oh. experienced anything like that before. It was absolutely horrifying. And they're there with like, uh, uh, I don't know, is it like Benadryl or epinephrine or something? I don't know. They injected me with something else to open my airway back up. So then from then on out, I would have to do pre-medication where I would take like heavy doses of, uh, of whatever it was that would stop that from happening so they could still inject me with the contrast. And every time they did, I could feel my body fighting it and like wanting to have a reaction. But these med the medicines inside of me, I think it was prednisone that I would take, Benadryl and prednisone to stop it from oh. flaring up. Um, and that was safe, but was horrifying. You know, it was like, I could feel my body going into fight or flight every time. And I don't know if it was because like my body was trying to have an allergic reaction and the medicine was stopping it, or if I was just terrified because I definitely was, but you know, yeah. but that can be really tricky if you're allergic to the contrast. Um, yeah. And I've had so many MRIs and I just found out that the last time they did an MRI, they didn't use contrast and I thought they did. Um, oh. Yeah. And like, I, I, I've identified with a lot of your story because my, ambulatory wheelchair use my periodic inability to use my legs and doctors will throw out those casual comments like oh this could be ms you know 
when you're just like desperate for a diagnosis and they're just tossing these things out like it's nothing and you kind of like try to figure out okay i gotta integrate this into my identity but then it isn't even that um because so many things can mimic what doctors think it looks like so the whole thing is a mess it is an absolute mess (laughs) it really is yeah and the fact that anyone ever gets a diagnosis is astonishing to me yeah i know sometimes i swear the only people who get diagnoses are the ones that get tested positive for things it's like Oh my gosh, could you imagine like getting a diagnosis for the first time? Like just I, well, going in place and it just like, <laughs> oh, here you go, here's your diagnosis. No. Isn't no, I can't. Yeah. Time? Oh my gosh. Yeah, I mean, you know, like when when I, I I've told this story a few times, I, I'm sure, but when I had testicular cancer, it was like I found a lump, went in, told a doctor, he had me do an an ultrasound, and it's like, yep, you got cancer. And it was like a couple days later, and I was like, "That's all. That's it. That's that's so easy. <laughs> like that's all you have to do to get a diagnosis." Um, it 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 completely rocked my world, and I'm so lucky. You know, I I was able to have surgery, and it was it was over. Um, I didn't even need to do radiation or anything. But like, but yeah, there might be someone who goes in, gets a positive A and A test, walks out with a ankylosing spondylitis diagnosis the next day. And it's over, you know, that, that person's out there somewhere. It's just, that's incredibly rare, you know, to, to have a doctor listen to you right away, let, a, let alone run the right test and knock it out of the park and find the diagnosis immediately. <laughs> That'd be crazy. Um, yeah, dream. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, I mean, I've really loved hearing your story today. I, I you know, I always, I love... I love identifying with people who have had these similar chronic illness journeys where it's like, yeah, we don't know exactly what's going on. No one would listen to me. Still pushing through it, finally making some progress. Um, I love hearing that. And I'm really excited for you about the future of your healthcare because it seems like it's finally gotten on the right page. Do you mind if I ask how old you are now? I'm 24 and I'm turning 25 okay. in January. Wow. So, I mean... This is like, you know, you've already been on a 10 year, at least 10 year journey of yeah. trying to figure out what's happening with like stuff happening even before that. And, yeah. you know, there's a, you have a lot of life ahead of you and there's a lot of a, a long way to go up that is possible. You know, now that you have this better care, you've already experienced some of like the improvement in your quality of life. And, you know, we just never know like where the where the lid is on that. It could be way higher than you already are at. And, you know, it just keeps getting better as, as you get the better medication. And I, I wish you all the best. I really appreciate you sharing your story with us today. I have one last question for you. Um, yeah. You're one of these people who started young and started mm-hmm. at an age where it's kind of impossible to advocate for yourself. So if you could change something about the medical system, about the way people are treated, uh, maybe someone who's 14 or 15 going to the medical system now, you know, what would, what would you want to see change? And what would you tell someone who is that young age about what to expect and how to manage themselves inside of that system? One of the biggest changes that I hope could ever be made is putting laws in place where it's almost like illegal to tell a child, especially children, that 
when they when they're coming in with physical health symptoms that it's anxiety without running tests. <laughs> yeah, totally. like, I, I want to see something like that. Um, but just overall, like even morally, like I just don't want doctors and nurses to be telling children that issues are because of like complex emotional problems or something that they're probably not even old enough to have um, <laughs> and just believe them the first time and just really listen to them and hear what they're saying um, and really go to bat for them and maybe send them to uh, like a children's hospital and not deal with them in an adult setting. I was dealt with only in an adult setting. Um, I never went to a children's hospital and sometimes I see in people's journeys and their stories that at around a similar age, they were brought to a children's hospital. And usually that has a major difference. Um, what I would have to say for somebody who's around that age or even younger is don't, don't let people tell you how you feel. Mm. I think I did that a lot. Um, don't be scared to speak up and say, listen, I, I don't feel like this is right. Um, I don't feel like I'm being listened to right now. And I want, I want someone to listen to me. Don't be scared to ask for a new doctor. Um, I know that can be so hard when you're a child because you might have a parental influence that might be saying like, you know, be quiet, just listen to your doctor or um, might not let you get a new doctor. Um, just stay strong. Like know that it's not, it's not your fault. Like you're not a failure, especially if, you know, school's involved and you're having a hard time going to school. Um, I felt like an awful failure. I would say those are some of the biggest things. Yeah. That's awesome advice. Don't let other people tell you how you feel. And yeah, let's pass some freaking laws. Let's pass some laws to yeah. make it illegal to, to slap a poorly thought out diagnosis on someone without running tests that has permanent ramifications because that's on their chart and other doctors will see it. There should be some sort of auditing system to go back through and edit people's charts retroactively when you find yeah. out that something's wrong, you know, that the doctors made a mistake. Like, I, I hear that also from people all the time. And I've also experienced this, that some sort of misdiagnosis on your chart can prevent you from getting care in the future. So, uh, yeah. so frustrating. Well, wow. Um, before you go, please tell us where can people find you if they want to connect with you online? Please feel free to share any social media or any projects or anything you want to plug. So, my TikTok at uh, Peach Vampire is probably the best place that people can find me. I have a link in my bio that kind of links to all my artwork. If anyone is interested in my art, because um, that's mostly what I'm doing on my day to day. It's how I like to uh, express myself. Um, so a lot of my medical journey is on my TikTok. And then and the link in the bio is where my Instagram, um, Facebook, anything else will be located. Cool. I'll tag you uh, on Instagram and TikTok when this podcast goes live, if you'd like. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Awesome. Um, well, I feel like there's a lot we didn't even have time to talk about. You know, I'm also an ambulatory wheelchair user. I, you know, we barely even touched the surface on that. 
Um, but yeah, if people want to learn more about your story, I know I follow you on TikTok. I know that's a great way to connect with you as well. Um, and like I said, if you have updates in the future, um, this goes for all my guests. I love to, you know, if people have changes in their, in their stories or a new diagnosis or anything like that, you know, once a year we do a, uh, a touching base episode where we talk to some people who've previously been on the show. Um, but if that happens, please let me know. I'd love to, I'd love to have you come back for that. Um, Becca, thank you so much for sharing your story today. You did an awesome job. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Major Pain. I'm Jesse Mercury, your host and the producer of this podcast. Artwork by Egg Salad Salad. Our theme music is the song Time Machine from my sci-fi synth-pop album, available at jessemercury.bandcamp.com. Send your thoughts or questions to our email address, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use that address to find us on PayPal. Tips are greatly appreciated. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Find more information about this show or leave a comment on any episode at our website, majorpainpodcast.com. Major Pain is supported by listeners on Patreon. Thank you to our $2 per month supporters, our $7 per month patrons Naomi Adele Smith, Sunny Roberts, Laura Stevens, Brooke Walters Schmidt, Kelsey Madsen, All Around Foundation Waterproofing, Danielle Signorelli, Alexandria Henderson, and Justin Minnick, and our $25 per month producers Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Ensign Q, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. Learn how you can support the show while receiving special recognition, gifts, and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash Pain Podcast.